Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. KickServeRadio.com is presented to you by SquadPod, committed to protecting your privacy and your business. Communicate safely with SquadPod. And Bracket, spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, an interactive mobile game where being aligned with celebrities and athletes has a nice payoff for you and charity. Take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. It is the Australian Open recap edition of KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network, the KickServeRadio.com team comprised of three-time Australian Open champion, seven-time major champion, former number one in the world, Mats Vlander, two-time Texas Longhorn All-American, Johnny Levine. I'm Andy Zoden, and it is time to talk Aussie Open tennis. Boys, it's good to get together. It's been a while, and and let's start with this. You know, when we were previewing the Aussie Open, the question was going to be, based on the quarantining and, and everything that went with all of the oddities of preparation for this Australian Open tournament, who would be at an advantage? And I think both of you, Matts and Johnny, agreed that the players with the most experience, particularly on the men's side with having played all of the best of five set matches over the course of their careers, those experienced players would be at the distinct advantage. And lo and behold, our champions are Novak Djokovic on the men's side, winning his ninth and Naomi Osaka on the women's side in dominating fashion, albeit down a couple of match points against Muguruza earlier in the tournament. But the experienced multiple slam winners were the winners. Any surprise to you, Mats Vlander? Um, no, there's no surprises. I mean, Novak Djokovic is so much better than everybody else at the moment. Uh, Naomi Osaka, same thing. Uh, she's so much better than everybody else. Yes, she survived a couple of match points. But I suppose interesting is that they both um, quarantined in Adelaide. And the Adelaide quarantine was way looser. They had apartments in this building. They had a gym in the building. And they would still be in the bubble if they went there. And then they had those five hours where they could leave the room. And now, of course, the players that quarantined in Melbourne, the soft quarantine, they had five hours to leave the hotel. So that means getting in a car, driving to the site, practice, uh, work out, and then back in the room. So that was quite a big difference. The biggest surprise to me is Jennifer Brady. Because Brady was actually under a hard lockdown for two weeks when she got to Melbourne because she was on a plane where somebody uh, tested positive. So she was in a room for two full weeks. Uh, And that's really, really impressive uh, for her to get to the finals. But Novak and Naomi, no, they're they're just... um, too good on hardcourts. I mean, easily the best hardcourt players uh, in the world, men and women, for sure. Best hardcourt players in the world, without a doubt. The best clay court player in the world, Johnny, is a guy that we also consider to be among the favorites. And obviously, I speak of Rafael Nadal. And it looked for all the world that he had things in hand with ease against Stefanos Tsitsipas. And in fact, the two sets that I watched, I thought to myself, Tsitsipas isn't winning points right now unless he's hitting winners. How can he possibly hit enough winners to win a set off of this guy, let alone and come back and win three straight? And yet when I woke up in my uh, my hotel room in, in, in Cancun, Mexico, to find that Tsitsipas had come back and won that one five in the fifth, I was in absolute utter shock. What were your thoughts? Yeah, I was shocked too. I mean, you, you, you rarely ever see – Nadal get two sets down and, and lose a match. I think two maybe up. the la- two sets up rather. The last time I think it happened maybe was the Fognini U.S. Open match. Right. I think he lost uh, or he won the first two and then lost the the next three. So it was definitely surprising. But when you look at from what I was hearing, the courts were playing very fast. So it, I don't know that it was a you know aside from Nadal you know winning the first two sets and then losing. I don't think it was. Uh, tremendous surprise I mean it still is hard courts and had he won that match he would have faced Medvedev I mean Nadal had a tougher road to get to the final than than uh than Djokovic and I think the biggest surprise of the tournament without question was Karatsev 
who was was basically a qualifier in the event, had only won four ATP matches and gets to the semifinals. This is a guy from Russia who ended up losing to to Djokovic. I mean, hats off to that guy. I mean, what what a tournament. Matt, tell us about this guy. Yeah, unbelievable. I mean, it's the first time in the Open era that a uh, Grand Slam debutante uh, and a qualifier at that gets to the semifinals. It's never actually happened before that a guy plays the first Grand Slam and he gets to the semis. Uh, I don't know where, where he's been um, or what he's done, uh, but he hit the ball so well. And it turns out that he hits the, his forehand uh, harder than anyone else in the top 50. And he hits his backhand the second hardest in the top 50. Obviously, he's not in the top 50. He might be now. Uh, so I'm not sure. It's weird how something like that happened. He was part of the ATP Cup for Russia, and they, of course, won the title. So that would have most probably given him some confidence to be part of uh, the team with Daniel Medvedev and uh, Andrei Rublev, of course, practicing and hanging out with them. But when I saw him play, uh, you not surprised at all. Uh, back to that Nadal. I'm interested in that because Nadal was playing great for the first two sets. He played great in the third set. And, and it nearly like Stefanos Tsitsipas... Uh, was able to do to Nadal, I thought, what Roger Federer did to Nadal in the finals in 2017. Uh, eventually, Tsitsipas was able to get on top of the bounce. He, of course, ended the match point with a backhand winner down the line, but he was taking time away from Nadal, I think. Yes, the courts were faster. I think Nadal got a little bit tired. He cramped during his press conference. Uh, afterwards, but uh, he said himself he was fine. But no, Tsitsipas, that was um, a great, great, maybe the best match of the tournament, apart from Nick Curios and Dominic Team, of course. But um, yeah, Tsitsipas. And then again, though, he runs out of you know energy against Daniel Medvedev. Just can't have that happen. I know it's tough, five sets, you got a day off, but you just cannot run out of energy after one long match. So he has to look at that for sure. Getting back to Curios, fellas. You know, you talk about the team match where he's ahead two sets to love, only to let that one get away. Prior to that match against Ugo Umber, he's actually down two sets to one. And if memory serves, a couple of match points. And it looked like Umber had that one well at hand, uh, only to allow Kyrgios back in the match. And then what was there of a maybe somewhat of a sparse, but a, a very amped up crowd that seemed to to really carry Nick Kyrgios to, to the victory that night. And then suddenly, Matt, we get an evening where, um, you know, Kyrgios is on the court with team, and it really was the last match to play to completion prior to the lockdown going into effect uh, in Australia. And then you had Taylor Fritz on the court with Novak Djokovic. And those, uh, in that particular match, the fans were actually sent home at 3-2 in the third or fourth set. And so they missed – the better portion of that match, Taylor Fritz would push Novak uh, to five sets, which at this point in retrospect certainly looks like a hell of an effort on the American side. But how much did things change from your vantage point as actually being on the call and really being, uh, you know, in, in, in the kitchen on this deal once the fans were sent home? Oh, so much. Uh, I mean, so much. We, we had um, Sasha Zverev's brother, Misha Zverev, do some stuff for uh, for Eurosport, the TV channel that I, that I worked for during Australian Open. He was sitting in a bunker on the court, and they came to him and told him, you have to leave. And he's like, what do you mean? I got a badge. I got everything. No, everybody had to leave the court. So it was weird and horrible. Did it help Djokovic? because he was injured in that match and did it help him that they, that they took a little break and he was able to sort of collect himself and, and, uh, and, and realize that if he pushed through for another 20 minutes, he might be through and then things could get better because that's exactly what happened. So I think Djokovic was a bit fortunate there, but, but Nick Curious, Oh my goodness. And again, uh, I had a chance to interview him as well. Andy, after his match against Hugo Amber. And you remember that one match point, Amber comes into Curious's backhand and he hits the most incredible cross court backhand, typical Curious style, where everybody in the whole stadium, including his opponent, is thinking, well, it's either down the line or it's going to be some kind of a flick lob. And he, and he flicks it hard cross court. So I asked him, 
Nick, that was unbelievable. It looks like you have so much time on your back and it looks like you're in slow motion, I swear. So when did you realize that, that, that that's, what, that's what you were going to do? He says, oh, it just happens because I don't practice. So I haven't worked on it in practice. It just happens like that. <laughs> I'm like, wow, really? You're going to say that? Let's talk more about Nick Kyrgios. Let's t- talk more about Djokovic. There's a lot of other players that I want to get to after the break. But that backhand, Johnny, that Mats is referring to that Kyrgios hit on match point reminded me of a backhand that Mats Vlander hit against John McEnroe on an indoor court in St. Louis during a Davis Cup match that lasted over six hours. So I had seen that shot before. All right, you're listening to kickserveradio.com. We're talking everything Australian Open. And Johnny wants to throw in some challenger results as well, so we'll get to that before we're out. Uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to talk a little bit about the situation with Tiger Woods because as we record tonight, this is the day of Tiger's accident. So I'm going to pose a couple of questions to these guys as to what the future may hold for Tiger Woods. But for now, let's go to break. KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Much more with the boys right after this. Bracket, spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, is an interactive mobile game that you have got to check out. Bracket features celebrities, athletes, and other major influencers discussing their favorite topics in a bracket-style competition where users can win big if they can guess the celebrity's picks. Another cool component is that Bracket features all of the celebrities, athletes, and influencers discussing their favorite charities on every show. So go to Bracket.com. Remember, it's B-R-A-C-K-I-T.com, where everybody wins. Bracket.com. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Andy Zoden, and I am joined by a star-studded team of Mats Vlander and Johnny Levine. And we are talking Australian Open tennis, having a little bit of fun talking about some of the great matches. All right, wait a second, Andy. I've got to interrupt you here. Um, We've got to talk about this situation in men's tennis where – We've still got the older guys that they haven't been unseated. I mean, you've got the the Dominic team came through, but obviously Djokovic, you know, had to retire, and now now he's back, and Nadal's back, and these guys are still going far in the tournament, and, and Djokovic winning. When are we going to see the new crop? I mean, this is the only thing I can relate it to is is Tom Brady at forty three years old, but we've got an anomaly going on here in tennis. Do these young guys are they ever going to beat these guys, Mats? Yeah, no, I, I'm not sure. You know, again, I mean, I hate to do it, but I literally just came, okay, got off the plane and, and uh, been working two weeks in a row. We got up at 3 a.m. in London time because we couldn't be on site in Melbourne, so we did it from Great Britain. And so I interviewed Novak a bunch of times, and I'm, I'm not name-dropping here, guys, but but uh, uh, we, we spoke to him so much that we needed to start getting some, you know, a, a sort of testy a little bit. So I asked him one day, I said, uh, so I know, like, in my day, we had Agassi Courier and uh, Sampras and Chang and Todd Martin. And I'm like, these guys are way too good for me. I'm out of here, I told him. So, I, and I couldn't really beat them. I beat Agassi, I think, a couple of times, but that's when he was 12, I think. And then, so I asked him, you guys managed to deal with the Marin Cilic and the Kane Ishikori and the Milos Raonic, no problem. But these younger guys, you know, uh, it's a little closer. And, of course, Daniel Medvedev, Alexander Zverev and Stefano Tsitsipas, they're also taller than you guys. And they're stronger, most probably. And, I mean, are they getting closer? <laughs> and Novak said, um, well, hold on a second. Matt. Let's be honest, Mats. Um, they're not really that close. Wow. And it's not like I'm going to hand it over to them, Mats. I'm going to make them work their ass off. This is after the quarterfinals that he played. And we're like, whoa, okay. Uh, And then after the finals, I told him uh, that I was impressed by his sense of humility because he didn't challenge Medvedev in these long rallies that we've seen before. He he did at times, but he was hitting the ball harder than he normally does. He hit some very uh, well-timed drop shots. 
He served and volleyed a couple of times. He was hitting his forehand harder at time. I mean, he played, this is most probably the most complete match I've ever seen Djokovic play against somebody who doesn't do that much with the ball. And that's the difference, I think. Medvedev, he doesn't have anything else to do. Sasha Zverev doesn't have anything else to do. Tsitsipas has a little bit more for sure, but he can't really slice the backhand long enough to stay in points and then work his way, whereas Nadal can, Federer can, and of course now Novak Djokovic. So I think you're right. I don't think they are in five sets. They are not getting any closer. In fact, after this tournament, I'll say they're as far away now as they've ever been. But yeah, before the match, I thought Medvedev had a good chance. I mean, literally, he had no chance at all. So I don't know if it's Tom Brady. I mean, you guys know American football. Tom Brady's defense, right? They basically won the Super Bowl. But does Tom Brady have something to do with the defense of his team? is the question. Does he help them as well? Is he that clever? What do you guys think? Well, the answer to that is very simple. Of course he does, because there are certain athletes that are, are, are great athletes. They're, they're, they're stars. They amass a lot of statistical greatness. And then there are your transcendent superstars that are full on culture changers. Right. And Brady is in that category. So when Brady comes to your town, Things are about to change for the better in all phases of the game, which would be offense, defense, and special teams. The same thing happened here in Denver, Matt, when Peyton Manning came to town. And the locker room was a very different place. You've got a guy like Nick Saban that goes to Alabama and changes the culture of Alabama football. You've got a guy like Bill Belichick who has done what he's done uh, in New England. You've got a guy like Michael Jordan that comes to Chicago, and you've got a guy like LeBron James, and you've got these athletes uh, that, that are, are a one-man culture change. And, and so that's probably what's going to need to happen in tennis. And I think that the culture changers are Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. Now, maybe Djokovic is somewhat skiing in the wake of Rafa and Roger. But, but I'd like to talk about this issue from the standpoint of a seminar that I just happened to do uh, during the USPTA Intermountain Divisional Conference with Dr. Jim Lair, who just wrote a book called Character in Leadership. And he talks about uh, a chapter of the book, which is called Energy Spawns Life. And in that chapter, he talks about the investment that you make in your physical, mental, and emotional musculature, meaning that you're not just a guy that's great because he spends a lot of time in the gym or on the track. You're not just a guy that's great because he's watching a lot of film and he's a student of the game, but you're combining all three of these levels of health. And that is what's creating the enduring athlete. And my question to him was, does this mean, Dr. Lair, that we're now seeing a level of buy-in not just in the sport of tennis, because you have to include Tom Brady in that, but that we're seeing a level of buy-in and that the more mature these athletes are, the more they adhere to all of these um, training rituals that you prescribe. And as a result, we're now seeing athletes that are peaking at a later age because maturity is intersecting with, with a physical prime that's happening later in life. And, and he felt that that was the case, that these are three very special athletes, but these are three guys that are unbelievably fine-tuned in the areas of, of physical, mental, and emotional strength. And so that, Johnny, I think is what we're seeing with this group, and that is to the detriment of the guys that are behind them because I would say, and Matt, I'll go back to you, isn't it a little daunting for them to see these guys still going as good as they are at this point. No, it's unbelievable. I mean, it really is unbelievable. But I guess you would have to throw in a question about Serena Williams there. Uh, what, why do you guys think that she's not able to get through? She was, she was moving better, for sure. I think she was playing better this time. Or is it just that Osaka is another sort of Serena or Rafa Nadal or Novak? Is she going to win 15 majors? Is that why she's too good for Serena because I thought she had a chance, but that's uh, it, interesting. Or do you have to be a great athlete in terms of movement in tennis to be able to play longer and get to ball? Because they're not like they're hitting winners, Rafa, Novak, and Roger. They're not just hitting winners. They're all over the place and not moving. 
they're moving as good as all the other players. And maybe that's where Serena is not. Uh, obviously, having become a mother, it's hard to get back uh, to the way she used to move. But it's interesting how it hasn't happened for her, which means that those three guys are absolute freaks to me. I, I don't even know how to – I can't ever put myself in, in their shoes I was trying to make a, some mathematics, guys, when I was on the plane flying home. And I had, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, boast a little bit about my, uh, my uh, short career, but in seven majors, I made five finals uh, for like a year and a half. That's the ratio that Novak is on for 15 years. I'm like, I, can, I remember those, 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 that year and a half. It was like 87, 88. I mean, there's no way I can keep going. He's been doing it since he was 21 years old. So I don't get where the motivation comes from. But I guess pushing Nadal and Roger to become the greatest has a lot to do with it, maybe. But I don't know. I'm dumbfounded by, by the way that he won this tournament, I have to say. I've, I've often thought, you know, what is the motivation for, for Nadal and Federer when they have everything they need in life and they've won all these titles? And it, it is an interesting perspective to think that maybe they are pushing each other and the fact that no one wants to let go and they want that most Grand Slam record. And, and I really believe that they are pushing each other. But it, but it is remarkable what they're doing. And, and when you look at uh, Serena Williams at 39 years old and, you know, she's had a kid and, um, you know, the pressure had gotten to her in her last couple of slams where she had opportunities to get to the 24th. And now she seems to be playing freer. But I think the problem that, that Serena is going to have in, in, in every tournament, unless, unless Osaka gets upset is going to be Naomi Osaka. Cause she's playing at a level that I think is, is far superior to any woman right now. I know Muguruza had, had the match points, but God, it's just, even, even when she was down match points, I mean, this Osaka has got a confidence about her. That's uncanny. I mean, she is hitting winners. She is, 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 is not missing. And um, she's all over her, her opponents, and I don't. I think she could be a a very, very multi winner of slams, and 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 probably will surpass ten slams in my opinion easily. She reminds me, Matt, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it's it's almost like Serena Williams and Bjorn Borg had a kid. But to think, you know, because I met Naomi in Gil Reyes's gym um, about seven years ago when she was 16. And she had just maybe beaten Sam Stoser at the U.S. Open that year. And to think that that little girl that I met, little girl, well, she wasn't a little girl, but she was a young lady, 16 years of age, would absolutely be bullying Serena Williams about the court. It literally looked like they were boxers that were either maybe maybe they were, okay. let's say both in the same weight class, if you will. But it almost looked like one of these older fighters fighting Mike Tyson and not even knowing what they were, what they were dealing with. And Serena Williams could not handle Naomi Osaka's pace. She could not, she, I mean, she took the racket out of Serena's hands. Did I, did I see that right? Yeah. I think it's just, I think it starts with the serve to be honest. Cause I think she serves as, I mean, she serves as good as Serena does now. Maybe not as good as Serena did when she was at her absolute best. But, I mean, she gets a lot of free points. You can't really attack her second serve. And I think it starts right there. And then, and then from there, she holds serve. Now she can take a few rips at some returns. So, yeah, I mean, and then you also think she's got so much room to improve as well. She doesn't really come forward. She could come forward a little bit more, look a little more comfortable defending at times. Because, I mean, let's be honest, Serena Williams, yeah, she's a great ball striker and she's an unbelievable serve. But when she was at her best, she was one of the best movers as well. And she, she, could, she could sort of uh, not make mistakes if that's what it took. Naomi Osaka, though, she has to figure out clay courts. She has to figure out grass courts before we raise her up to the level of uh, sort of a next, uh, a next dominant force on the WTA Tour because she didn't even play the French uh, and she doesn't win matches on grass necessarily. So she has that to figure out. Before we go to break, and Johnny, I texted you prior to the Aussie Open, and I said, Serena Williams looks to me like she's going to win her 24th this year. And I think it was the next day that you texted me the link that she had withdrawn from that tournament that next day. So I had that going for me. Now, before we go, though, Matt, you brought up 
Jennifer Brady. And my wife's almost starting to get a little frustrated with me of how enamored I am with this girl now. But I would say that I, I can honestly tell you guys, I'm not sure that there's a player on the men's or the women's tour that I enjoy watching play more than I do Jenny Brady. And so that's why, you know, I wanted to bring her on the show and hopefully we'll be able to do that uh, in the near future. But am, am I misreading? I mean, she is playing an electrifying brand of tennis right now that is so much fun to watch. But not only that, but as a teaching pro, it seems like she's got the kind of game that you could teach a kid to emulate. Maybe she's not going to be as athletic and, 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 and have the level of energy and the strength and the power and the ball striking ability that Jen Brady's got. But man, I mean, I love watching the way she plays and she's fearless and a great attitude. Uh, am I overstating this? Jen Brady, to me, the tennis that she's playing is really, really remarkable. It's off the charts. She is really powerful. She serves big. She's got a huge forehand. She attacks. She's aggressive. She she keeps her opponent moving at all times, and she doesn't make many errors. Um, she goes for it, and and even on big points, she's playing that same aggressive style of play. I think that's the biggest difference, and that's why you're seeing her saw her get to the semis and play Osaka in a great semi at the Open, and why she got to the finals of the Australian Open is that she is fearless out there, going for her shots and. Um, it's really great to see. I mean, she she's a, she went to college at UCLA and seems like a great, great young lady. And uh, I think she's got a, a, a big future ahead of her for sure. Matt, after that uh, U.S. Open match uh, that Johnny just referenced, you came out on the next show and said, Jen Brady's going to be top, top five, top ten in the world. I mean, you didn't even hesitate to make that comment. Now, I want to ask you this question because when I was watching her play, I agree with Johnny that, she goes for it. She's aggressive, but she doesn't make a ton of errors. But to me, she looked like the next level for her might be the incorporation of maybe 5% more of a grinder's mentality than she seems like she's got. And coming from one of the ultimate grinders of all time yourself, how do you assess that? I was going to say exactly the same thing, except I wasn't going to use that word describing myself. Okay. Uh, I was going to use pusher, but um, no, Jennifer Brady, actually, I thought she had a really good chance to win this finals. And I am now, I think she's great. She's a great player. She is a good ball striker. She's got, she doesn't really have a weakness anywhere. She actually moves, moves pretty good. Maybe she could defend a little bit better, but uh, so I'm going to put her in there. She's going to be top five uh, for sure in the next year or two. Uh, I think she has a chance to win a major because she can win it on the other surfaces as well. Uh, clay court is going to be a great surface for her once she gets a little confident with that forehand. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm in Jenny Brady's camp all day. I love watching her play. Now, I'm going to tell you, uh, watching a Grand Slam final, and I saw a player playing against Naomi Osaka in that first set, if you guys noticed how windy it was. okay, And because it's windy... Yeah, I'm going back to your point now, Andy. You have to be a little bit of a grinder when it's windy. And what Jennifer Brady did not do in the finals in the first set, she wasn't using the forehand topspin that she has with the wind. If you watch Rafa Nadal play with the wind, that's when he spins the ball more and he gets the ball to bounce higher. And she could have done that to Osaka. She could have spun her forehand and let the ball bounce higher and push Osaka back. Then when she was playing into the wind, she would nearly every time let Osaka's second serve come to her and take it 10, 15 feet behind the baseline and loop the return back and start. When she learns how to adapt to the wind, meaning a good wind player plays the exact opposite. You play with air underneath the ball, height over the net with the wind. You use your kick serve with the wind to push your opponent back. Now you're playing into the wind. You take the service return early. You take every ball early because into the wind, you want to hit hard. You want to hit it as flat as you can so that the ball skids through the court and causes problems for your opponent trying to get the ball up over the net and let it come down. So I agree with you that she should take 5% off uh, of, of a lot of her shots, especially in big matches. And 
I thought that she might have made a too many, few too many non-forced errors. The pressure for sure got to her. Osaka hits the ball bigger than everybody else. But she took another step towards winning a Grand Slam, and I actually believe she will win one at least. I really do. Last comment on Jenny Brady match. You interviewed her after her semifinal win over Mukova, who uh, took her to three sets. It was a great match. What kind of kid is she? Yes, Jennifer Brady. And what I love about her is that she's 25, and she's got that maturity of having gone – I don't know if she went through four years in college, but she certainly went to college for a couple of years. That I know. Uh, and she's mature, um, most probably beyond 25 years, but that's what I like about her. Sometimes it's not easy to break through at 25, but I think she seems so fresh and she's gotten herself into great shape. And I think that's lately, the last few years, she's gotten herself into shape. She, she goes and trains in Germany I mean, what American tennis player is going to go and train in Germany? That, to me, is a, uh, uh, a motivational sort of factor that she's willing to go to Germany and train with a German coach and a German physio. That tells me everything. And it's kind of sort of strange that these, uh, Jennifer Brady, Shelby Rogers, uh, Jesse Pegula, they're breaking through now. And now the Sloan Stevens and Madison Keys is kind of, uh, I don't know, they're falling by the wayside. So it seems like they have realized if you work really hard, you can get to the top of the women's game. You can get to the top of any game. Uh, and maybe uh, that'll also um, fire up Stevens and Madison Keys a little bit. I mean, I know they're struggling with injury, but we're still hoping that these guys w- will sort of come back and, and get to the top. Because American, I mean, they have 17 women in the top 100, I just saw. That's incredible. Great statement for American tennis. When we come back, we'll talk more about that. We'll talk about the all-time standings of major champions. We've got lots more to get to on this Aussie Open recap on kickserveradio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network, so don't go away because we won't. We'll be right back. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt's V-Lander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion, Matt Spielander, now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high-quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I had never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with mats is an amazing experience, one I assure you you will never forget. After my clinic with mats, Every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to MatsVLanderTennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. Welcome back, everybody. Final segment, Aussie Open Recap. We are kickserveradio.com. We are part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And, Johnny, during the break, Matt Svetlander gave us a quick recap of, of every tournament that he's ever won. And I'm not sure what precipitated him doing that, but he did. And it makes you think that if Novak Djokovic had been doing that, that would have, we'd have needed a longer break. But um, he has now caught Jack Nicklaus although I'm sure that's not who he was chasing down, but he's caught Jack Nicholas at 18. Now the question becomes probably not if he catches Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal, but can we try and pinpoint when? When does Novak Djokovic land on the same number as these other guys? So I'll start with, with you, Mats, because I would think that it's probably not going to be at the major that you won first, as you just mentioned during the break, which was the 82 French Open. 
um, we got to give that one in all likelihood to Rafa. And if that holds to form the way we expect it to, now we're at 21 for Rafa, 20 for Roger, and 18 for Novak. So give us a, a, a sort of a projected time frame on when Novak closes the gap on these guys. Uh, wow. I mean, I've been calling for a Novak calendar Grand Slam for the last most probably eight years because I could never see how Rafa could do it. And I could never see how Roger could do it because of, because of Rafa at the French. And I couldn't see Rafa winning the French and Wimbledon and then going on to win the hard courts, both in Australia as well. I, I mean, I don't see Novak not winning Wimbledon and the U S open or, or certainly clearly be the favorite in both of them. So now he's at 20 and now it's the elusive French open uh, title that he obviously has won, but it needs another one. And is he going to make the same mistake as he did against Nadal this last year? I don't think so in terms of tactics. So, I mean, Novak or Rafa is at 21 at the end of this year. Okay. I'm pretty sure. And um, I, I can't say he's the favorite to win the French Open, but I really, really think this was a massive, massive uh, momentum switch for, for him in terms of uh, uh, motivation, in terms of figuring out how he needs to play uh, against these younger guys. He hit 100 aces going into the Australian Open finals this year, and the most he's hit before the Australian Open, before the finals, is 70. He's averaging 50. He hit 100 this year. And obviously, Goran Ivanisevic is a huge part of his uh, game these days. And he's coming at a perfect time because Marian Vida is more of a baseline sort of coach uh, and sort of a, a second father to Novak. But I think Goran Ivanisevic is in there and he's sort of kicking Novak's butt a little bit about how he needs to shorten the points, need to go for the second serve at the right time. And I mean, he's serving unbelievably well. So I think that he's going to be at 20 at the end of the year. The question is, who's at 21? Is it Rafa or Novak? Johnny, when you look at this result from Rafael Nadal, which we discussed earlier in the show, and we talked about the unlikely loss at the hands of Sefnos Tsitsipas, up two sets to love, losing five in the fifth, is there going to be potential scar tissue for Rafa to battle through because of this loss? Or does that go away the minute he feels the familiar, you know, uh, sensation of dirt under his shoes? I think it goes right away. When he gets going on that, that clay court surface, you know, all bets are off. I mean, he, he's, he's the clear favorite. When you talk about when is Novak going to pass these guys Everything, in my opinion, with with the three guys at the top there, I'll put Federer right in there too, it's all going to come down to injury. If they can stay injury-free, they're going to do it. And, and, and you know, I, I still think I would give the edge to, to Novak, uh, even if they're all healthy, because I think Nadal will struggle beating Novak on the grass and on a hard court. Um, clay court, I still think Novak has a great chance. But back to your initial question, Andy, you put Rafa Nadal back in Paris, back at his home. He's won 13 French Open titles. He really, you know, when you look at his result at the Australian, I know he was up two sets to love, but he was playing very solid tennis. He had a little back injury, they said. Um, He was right there. And and those courts were, were definitely not favorable to him. So he's right there. You get him get him ready for the French and, and he's definitely the, the big favorite in my mind. Now the question that I have to ask on top of all of that goes back to something that we discussed in the Aussie open preview when we were talking about the Super Bowl matchup and we were talking about the matchup between Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes. And we said, well, what, what might the tennis year look like? Well, we've already seen one version of that. Two, actually, we saw Tom Brady take down Patrick Mahomes in the Super Bowl and we saw Novak Djokovic absolutely toy with Daniil Medvedev in the Australian Open final. Now the question begs to be asked, are we going to see more of these old school versus new school major championship finals? And if so, what player on what surface has the best chance based on what you saw in Australia, Matt Svelander, to unseat one of these guys in a major final? Well, I mean, I would say that Medvedev obviously 
has a chance on hard courts, uh, US Open as well. Um, I, I don't think that any of the young players... Uh, Dominic Team, I suppose you can you count him as a young player because he obviously is 20s. the biggest threat to Rafa on a clay court and Yannick Sinner. Take a shot, everybody. That's our new drinking game. Anytime Matt Vlander brings up Yannick Sinner, you got to take a shot. So go ahead, we'll wait. Yeah, well, he was unlucky. I'll throw that in there. He, <laughs> he he played three set final. He was the last match on Sunday before the Australian Open started. He was the last man at the stadium. And he won in three sets, won, won a title, and then he had to play the next day against Denis Shapovalov and lost in five sets. But I think Sinner can bother Nadal on clay because of the way he plays if he gets a little stronger, and it has to happen soon. Uh, and then I think that um, Dominic Team, obviously, but I'm not sure if there are too many other threats. But on hard courts, it's certainly done in Medvedev. I think Sasha Zverev could potentially bother bother them a little bit, but he, or he could get to a finals and maybe not win it again because he serves absolutely huge. Uh, and, um, I mean, Taylor Fritz, Raleigh Opelka, these guys, I don't know if they're going to take the next step or not, but every time I see them play, I'm thinking, yes, they can. Why are they not? And maybe Fritz took a step closer, but then Novak was injured. But uh, I, I don't know. I think we're still seeing these guys are improving uh, very quickly, they're becoming very dangerous. And every time Dalin Medvedev gets to a finals of a Grand Slam, see, he can do it. I can do it. Sasha Sverev should have won the Open. See, he does it. I can do it. So I think they're they're fueling each other on. And I think that uh, uh, we're going to see less of Novak and Rafa in finals, but one of them against one of the young guys. I think that's the, the way it's going to be through the year. Let's talk about Zverev for a second, because I find him to be a curious situation in a number of ways, not the least of which being, can we get him a better fashion consultant? <laughs> I mean, what is he wearing out there? That's awful. Yeah. All right. Let's start with that. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of the way they dress him uh, at Nike with the sleeveless shirt and the whole thing. That's, I mean, have a few muscles on your body. If you're going to wear that thing, let's start with that. But secondly, that match against Djokovic, you know, he, he, he jumped out to a lead in the first set a pretty good lead and in dominant fashion ends up holding on and winning a tiebreaker. Then in the fourth set, he takes a three love lead, loses it in a tiebreaker, loses in four sets. And it was an interesting thing because I never felt, although it looked for all the world that Zverev had certain points in that match kind of by the throat, like Djokovic was ever bothered by, by scoreboard pressure in that. And, and so it makes me wonder if there's not something going on with Zverev. We see things uh, go on with him with, with, with off-the-court distractions, domestic issues, if you will. Um, how seriously is he really being taken as a threat to win majors based on what we see at, at, at points where he just – I texted you, Matt, so I, I hate to use this word, because of, but, but he, he just has a tendency to spit the bit. As I told you guys, uh, Misha Zverev was part of our uh, Eurosport team. And I asked, and he actually said himself, what's so great about my brother, he said, is that he's got room for improvement. He's got room for improvement at the net. He's got room for improvement with the slice backhand and defensively. So then uh, fast forward a few days, and I asked him about Daniel Medvedev. I said, you know what? It's kind of like your, your little brother, Daniel Medvedev, same thing. Doesn't really volley well at all, I have to say. Can slice a backhand, but not really. Seems like there's a lot of room for improvement. And Misha said, well, yes, but at the same time, when you're that young and you're winning that much, uh, you tend to just focus on what gets you the win and you focus on your strength. And then once you start uh, sort of uh, losing a little bit, that's when you start incorporating other things. So my question to you, Johnny, is, I knew how to slice a backhand when I was 12 years old. It, it, I just never did it on TV. Uh, Rafa Nadal knew how to slice a backhand long, long before we saw the first slice backhand. So did Novak Djokovic. They just didn't have to use it. Now Novak is using it. Now Rafa is using it. Is, is that the right mindset, do you think, Johnny, for a young player is to work on your strengths and get them better and see how far that takes you before you start working on your weaknesses because there is a chance that you might start using your slice back and your weaknesses a little bit too early in your career. What's your take on what should you try and work on everything or should you be careful uh, sort of uh, disturbing a winning game? Cause these guys are winning a lot on tour. 
That is a really great question. And I would, I would say that if, if you have, uh, you know, a glaring weakness, that it's going to be most important to work on your weakness uh, because that's where you can get exposed and that's where you can, I mean, great. Yeah. If you have a really great backhand, but you want to add a, a slice to it, mix it up. I think that that's a great thing to add to a game, but more importantly, if you have a, a weakness, um, that's what can take you down. And so I think that the, the, my top priority would be to be working on the weaknesses, get those up to, up to a level where you can't get exposed and then start to focus on variation and of maybe, you know, you have a two-hander and you need to, you know, sh- mix it up with a slice and off pace and things like that. I just think that uh, the most important thing would be to be to concentrate on the weaknesses. You always have to work on your weaknesses. Before we check out, we've done all this chatting about uh, Novak Djokovic winning his 18th and the, the all-time slam count and these guys that are on the verge of winning major championships. What about some guys that are on the verge of, of maybe having their name called at a major championship? Some of these guys that are making a little bit of noise at the challenger level. I know you got a couple of guys that you've taken note of here in the last couple of weeks, and we haven't seen much challenger tennis. What's going on out there? there ha- the challenger circuit in the U.S. has basically been zero. Uh, there, is a, there is an event coming up in March in Cleveland. I think the USDA is going to put one on and in Florida coming up, it's been really difficult for the Americans um, that, you know, not having the challenger level and opportunity to make some money and get some valuable points to get into the qualities and the main draws of the, of the ATP tournaments, uh, not having them in, in your backyard makes it really difficult to have to travel in these, you know, and with the pandemic going on and go to Europe and different things is difficult. So a lot of the guys have chosen to stay back, but we have to talk about three young Americans that are really, really coming onto the scene. Um, you've got Brandon Nakashima at 19 years old, who's won um, a couple challengers now, um, but but he's done done fantastic and, and he's playing great. Then you've got Jensen Brooksby, a 20-year-old who's, I believe, still at Baylor University, but, but he um, is a young guy that probably will turn pro soon. He just won a challenger in South Africa, and I think he's just entered into the top 250 and he's approaching the top 200. He's a guy that we have to watch out for. And, and then um, the, the, the top one right now, the young American that everyone is looking at is Peter Corda's son, Sebastian Corda. And um, he's had some tremendous results winning finals of Del Rey, a 250 event and won a couple of challengers. And he just beat Sangha in the first round of a tournament, I believe in France. And he has really, really come on strong. I think uh, he's broke the top 100. Would love to get Mass's thoughts if he's seen him play, but he, he just might take over the top, top American spot uh, you know, relatively soon. He's, he's a player that's uh, got an all-court game, a lot of confidence. He's got great genes. His sisters are on the pro golf tour, and uh, evidently he's a great guy and, and someone we definitely need to be watching out for. Yeah, I mean – Unbelievable ball striker. And actually, Peter Corda decided that he didn't want Sebastian to go to Australia and play the Australian Open. He thought it'd be better to get more matches and play challengers uh, rather than play the Australian Open, which is an interesting take and a path, which I 100% agree with. I think he's going to play enough Australian Open. So, yeah, he looks, uh, he looks really good. Good mover, good ball striker. Obviously, having Peter Corda as your father, but I mean, what are they doing right, Peter and his wife? I mean, with people like that, that's wow. I mean, Nelly and Jessica aren't just on the LPGA tour; they're budding superstars on that tour. I mean, they are brilliant golfers. And before we check out tonight, Matt, so I'll give you the final word because as we talk about young Americans, and all you know, as, as you like to bring up Yannick Sinner on every show, I like to bring up Coco Golf. Is she a consistent? second serve away from being any kind of a threat to replicate what we saw from her, that flash in the pan in 2019. I mean, it still, it still seems like it's a a big time head game for her with that serve. What did you see? I think she um, is playing at the moment. She's playing too big a game. Okay. 
Yeah, she's playing too big a game. And yes, we know physically she's incredible. She's got a, a great ball striking ability. She moves unbelievably well. But most great players at some point in their career won matches because they were not missing. And then they add power. They add a little uh, aggressiveness in coming to the net, a la Stefan Edberg, uh, a la John McEnroe eventually. Uh, I, John McEnroe was a baseliner, grew up on clay uh, in Port Washington, and then obviously became the best baller maybe of all time. I think Coco Goff is risking a little bit too much. I would prefer to see her win matches by being mentally strong, and you can only be mentally strong by not missing. So I think she's feeling, uh, it looks like she's feeling the pressure of having to play too big a game at, at too young an age. And I, I would love to see her take a step back, use her physicality, make no mistakes, and let these ladies come out and beat her. Because right now she's kind of beating herself with including that second serve and the in the and the uh, up and down serving but i think even in the in the game I, i'm not i'm not a big fan of somebody that young taking as many risks as she does is she ever going to put it together i mean i hope so but if she was a grinder or a pusher i think she she will definitely going to get to the top of the game but I, i'm not sure that's another interesting take for you guys to to think about well it sounds like what you're saying uh, correct me if i'm wrong but you want Coco Goff to play a little bit more like Johnny Levine when he was a sophomore at Texas and just wouldn't lose to anybody and maybe eventually uh, ascend to the level of a Mats Wielander, uh at, at, at age 17 that, that sort of topspin lobbed his way to a French Open title in 1982 over Guillermo Vilas in the final. <laughs> All right, guys, great stuff. We want to wish Tiger Woods well. We didn't really get a chance to talk about that. A horrific car crash on the day of our recording. We really don't know enough to comment in intelligently about it, so we won't, other than to say that if this guy comes back from this, boy, oh, boy, I mean, it's just never a dull moment with Tiger Woods, and we wish him well, and we just hope to see him walking and in good health, and then eventually if he ever uh, hits a golf ball uh, in competition again, that'll just be icing on the cake. For Andy Zoden, Matt Lander, Johnny Levine, this has been the Aussie Open recap of kickserveradio.com on Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Looking forward to more great things in 2021. Stay with us. we got great things coming up. And in the meantime, enjoy the Miami Open. You won't see Indian Wells, but the Miami Open is up next. And then, of course, the Claycourt season. So take care, and we'll see you guys soon.